0: Began with an account of Jesus returning to heaven. But before he left, he promised his disciples that they would not be left alone. He told them they were to wait in Jerusalem for the arrival of the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, they were powerless. But with the Spirit, they would change the world. And last week we saw the disciples waiting. And as they waited, they devoted themselves to prayer and to scripture. And now this morning we come to the day that Jesus promised. The day when his people would be clothed with power from on high. If you haven't already, turn there. And if you have a Bible, turn to Acts chapter 2. In the church Bible, that's page 1093. two things happened on this day. The Holy Spirit arrived, and Peter preached a sermon. We can't understand one of those things without the other. So this morning we'll look at both the power and the message. And we'll also ask what this day in history means for us today. First of all, we'll read from verses 1 down to verse 13. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites... Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. The church receives its power. This event is known today as Pentecost. But actually, the day of Pentecost existed long before the Holy Spirit came. It was an annual one-day Jewish festival. And it was celebrated every year on the 50th day after Passover. Passover. Pentecost means 50th. Jesus was crucified at Passover. Then after his resurrection, he spent 40 days with his disciples. So Acts chapter 2 takes place about 10 days after Jesus returned to heaven. Pentecost was one of three annual pilgrimage festivals. So Jews from all over the world would make their way to Jerusalem. And that explains all the different nationalities that are mentioned here. It's estimated that because of these visitors, there would have been as many as 200,000 people in Jerusalem at this time. So the city is heaving. And in the midst of it all, Jesus' followers meet together. Chapter 1 told us there were about 120 of them at this point. And as they're met together, suddenly there's a sound. It's a sound like the blowing of a violent wind. And they see what seemed to be tongues of fire on each of them. In other words, they had difficulty describing what they saw and heard. Wind and fire are the best descriptions they could come up with. And throughout the Old Testament, wind and fire are associated with God's presence. For example, on Mount Sinai, when God gave his people the law, it was wind and fire. But now God has come to do an even greater thing than that. He's come not just to communicate with his people, but to live in his people. The disciples had trouble describing what they saw and heard, but the results of what happened are very clear in verse 4. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Filled with the Spirit is another way of saying baptized with the Spirit. The book of Acts uses those terms interchangeably. And other tongues means other languages. And we need to be clear, this is not a case of Peter trying out a little bit of Greek that he'd picked up back in school. And maybe Thomas chipping in with a bit of Egyptian that he'd learned on holiday. These were languages they didn't know. They were speaking them because the Spirit enabled them. And as the disciples spill out onto the streets, they draw a crowd. And the crowd is bewildered. Look at verse 7 again. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? How did the crowd know the disciples were from Galilee? Well, it could have been their strong accents, or maybe they were just known to be followers of Jesus, who was himself from Galilee. In any case, the crowd knows that this is not normal. They realize that the men who are speaking are not master linguists. Something out of the ordinary is going on here. And what the crowd hears in verse 11 is the disciples declaring the wonders of God. So, this is not some sort of glorified party trick that doesn't have any purpose. This event is bringing glory to God by communicating the truth about God. And it's worth filing that away in our minds. The Holy Spirit is not into party tricks. He doesn't just do unusual things for their own sake. His aim is always to bring glory to God. That's a helpful test of whether something is truly from the Holy Spirit. Does it point people's attention to God? Does it glorify God? If not... It's probably not from God the Holy Spirit. Commentators point out to us that this event in Jerusalem is a symbolic reversal of the Tower of Babel. You might remember what happened at Babel. It's recorded back in Genesis chapter 11. At that time, we're told humanity spoke one language, And they came together to try and build a tower up to heaven. In their pride, they wanted to make a name for themselves, rather than glorifying God's name. God responded by confusing their language, so they couldn't understand each other. And from that confusion came division among the people, and then the scattering of the nations across the earth. But now here, by overcoming the barriers of language, God is showing his ability to unite the nations. This is a little foretaste of God's work to form one united people of God. And all of this provokes two different reactions in the crowd. Some make fun of what they can't explain. They say the disciples are drunk. Even though there's no indication that they were acting drunk. But others in the crowd are genuinely looking for answers. And they ask in verse 12, What does this mean? In other words, what's the bigger explanation for this? We know something significant is happening here. What is it? And at this point, Peter steps up to give the explanation. In verses 14 to 41, the church announces its message. Look at verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. is that the arrival of the Spirit brings a new era promised by God. Peter says this day in history is not just another day. It's the beginning of something new. And it's a beginning that was promised long ago. There are several key passages Peter could have quoted from the Old Testament. But he chooses to quote from the prophet Joel. Over 800 years earlier, God spoke through Joel about the last days, meaning the days before the final judgment day. In those days, God said, I will pour out my spirit on all people. And then he explains what he means by all people. He means sons and daughters, young and old, men and women. So God is talking about all people without distinction, not all people without exception. In other words, God is not saying every single person will have his Spirit poured out in them. He's saying all kinds of people will. Your age and gender and your social status are no barrier to receiving God's Holy Spirit. And God says those who receive his Spirit will prophesy and see visions and dream dreams. Those are all ways of saying roughly the same thing. God will give his people understanding. He will guide them. He will interact with them. And isn't that what Jesus had promised? At the start of the service, we read from John chapter 16. Jesus promised that the Spirit would guide Jesus' followers into all truth. And here, Peter is saying to the crowd God promised a new era where He would be among His people, guiding and directing them, not just giving them the law or the Scriptures, but enabling them to understand and apply and obey those Scriptures. In this new era, God's people will have a whole new closeness with God. God will supply them with a whole new ability to serve him. And, says Peter, this is the day the new era begins. Things will never be the same after this day. The end of this quotation from Joel moves from talking about the last days to the last day. The last days will not go on forever, God says. Look at verse 19. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. When we looked at chapter 1, we said the delay of Christ's return was an act of mercy by God. We often use the word awesome when we're talking about things that aren't really awesome at all. But the final judgment day will be a truly awesome day. These verses paint a picture for us of a world that's in upheaval. But in his mercy and patience, God has given us these last days to prepare for the last day. Verse 21 says that in these last days, we have opportunity to call on the name of the Lord and be saved meaning saved from the horrors that will come on that last day. The clock is ticking. This era of opportunity will not go on indefinitely. Now is the time to come and find forgiveness and find new life in fellowship with God. Not a God who's standing away up there on the mountaintop, Not a God whose presence is hidden away in a temple, but the God who lives in his people by his Spirit. Peter has a double reason for quoting these verses from Joel. He not only wants to explain that this is a new era, he also wants to explain who is Lord of this new era. You may have noticed that Jesus has not yet been referred to in this chapter. But verse 21 ended with the promise that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's important to realize that in the Old Testament, Lord is a translation of God's personal name, Yahweh. And remember, Peter is preaching here to Jews. They're religious people. They're people who knew Joel's prophecy. They're people who were expecting the pouring out of God's Holy Spirit. But Peter wants them to grasp something they haven't yet understood. He wants them to see who holds the key to this new era. He wants them to see precisely what it means to call on the name of the Lord. It means responding to Jesus of Nazareth. In verses 22 to 36, Peter explains that God has made Jesus of Nazareth, Lord of this new era. Verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. In verse 22, Peter mentions Jesus of Nazareth. And he mentions that Jesus was a man. And he was truly and fully man. But the Jews had assumed that's all he was. They killed him for blasphemy when he claimed to be God as well as man. But Peter says that's exactly who he was. You were given all the proof you needed of that, but you rejected him. You put him to death on a cross. Peter wants this crowd to realize they're guilty of a terrible thing. But that is not Peter's main point here. His main point is that God the Father was doing something major at the cross. Even Jesus' horrible death wasn't an accident. It wasn't a mistake. Verse 23 says, This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. Yes, the crucifixion was a great evil. But God also used it to work out his plan. God the Son came to earth to die. Later on, Peter will explain why he died. But here he goes on to say that God the Father raised him from death. And that resurrection tells us something about who Jesus is. To explain what it tells us, Peter quotes a psalm that was written by King David. Verse 25, David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. The key lines here are in verse 27. David says to God, You will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. Now, David was writing originally about his own hope for the future. David was God's anointed king. In that sense, he was God's Holy One. But Peter wants to point out, David was not God's ultimate Holy One. How do we know that? Because everyone in Jerusalem could go and visit David's grave. Verse 29 Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on an oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear. David didn't rise from the grave. It turns out that God was speaking through David about his ultimate holy one, the Christ. That's Jesus of Nazareth. God showed he was the Christ by raising him. And he didn't just raise him from the grave, he raised him higher still to the right hand of God. That's a way of speaking about the place of honor. The father has raised his son to rule. Now, Jesus is not sitting on an earthly throne. That will come later in the new heavens and earth. But let's be clear that Jesus is reigning today. He is the Lord of this new era. He's the one who pours out the Holy Spirit. In verse 34, Peter quotes from another Psalm of David. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The point is that David was Israel's greatest king. But he knew there was a greater Lord still to come. David knew that the order of authority didn't consist of God the Father and then David the King. No, David spoke of the Lord, that's God the Father, and then my Lord, that's another person, a person who's higher than David, one who sits at the right hand of the Father. Peter says the person at God's right hand is Jesus. Verse 36, therefore let all Israel be assured of this God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now I realize that we might not have kept up with all the little steps of Peter's argument. He goes through those steps because he's speaking to Jews, he's helping them understand the Old Testament that they all knew so well. Some of the finer points might seem obscure to us, but there can be no confusion about the main point here. This day in history begins a new era, and God has made Jesus of Nazareth Lord of this new era. The blessings of this new era come through Jesus, If you and I want to deal with God in these last days, we have to deal with Jesus. That's Peter's point. God the Father has given all rule and authority into the hands of his risen Son. And as our passage closes, the message is that only through Jesus can we receive the forgiveness and new life we need. And for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them, and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. One of the works of the Holy Spirit is to show us our guilt before God and our need for forgiveness. And as Peter has been speaking, the Holy Spirit has been doing his work. We're told that the people are cut to the heart. They are genuinely moved by what they've heard. They know they need to respond to it. And when they ask, what shall we do? Peter says, repent, be baptized, and do these things in the name of Jesus Christ. First of all, he says, repent, meaning turn from your sin and turn to God. That means turning to Jesus. To the one who was crucified because of your sin. That's why God handed him over to those wicked men. That's why the son submitted himself to the hands of those wicked men. He did it to pay the debt of our sin. To die as our substitute. It was all part of the plan. And as a result, there is a way for us to be forgiven. We often sing a song that says, On that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. Forgiveness comes to those who say, I deserve death. But I put my trust in the one who died in my place. I can live because he died. It's often been called the great exchange. Jesus took the sin and punishment. You and I can receive forgiveness and we can escape punishment. Peter goes on in verse 38 be baptized. In other words, show your repentance by making a personal, public response. The point here is not that baptism causes your sins to be forgiven. No, it's repentance that leads to forgiveness. Baptism is a way of showing that we've repented. It's a way to go public about it. And these early Christians all did go public. There were no unbaptized believers in the early church. And in verse 38, Peter says, Those who do repent in Jesus' name will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is not just for a certain kind of Christian, He's not just for those who've had some kind of higher level spiritual experience. There are not two classes of Christians spirit-filled ones, and then ordinary ones. No, all those who repent in the name of Jesus receive the gift of the Spirit. So the good news, what we call the gospel, is that those who turn to Jesus receive both forgiveness of sins and the Holy Spirit. Both deliverance from our guilt and the power to live for God. We are doubly blessed. So we mustn't think of the Christian life as a situation where God gives us a fresh start and then it's down to us not to mess it up this time around. The reality is far, far better than that. God, the Holy Spirit, walks with us in this new life. Look again how Peter finishes Verse 39, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. We're told here that God is sovereign over the gifts of forgiveness in new life. Those gifts are for all whom the Lord our God will call. Even our repentance is a gift from God. And at the same time, we are responsible to answer God's call to repentance. Peter says it urgently to these people. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Turn from your sin, he's saying. Turn to the Savior God has provided. And verse 41 says... Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. The day began, you'll remember, with about 120 believers. It ended with about 3,000 new believers. That's a massive increase. And yet it's still a small percentage of the 200,000 or so that are here in the city. There's much more work to be done. The whole world needs to be reached with this message. But now the church is equipped to do it. They have the power of the Holy Spirit. Every single one of them has the Holy Spirit. And they have their message. The message of a risen Savior who has power to forgive sins and power to give new life. Acts chapter 2 tells us about a unique day. It won't be repeated. And we shouldn't expect it to be repeated. The Spirit has come. We don't need to wait around for spectacular events like wind and fire and tongues. The Holy Spirit comes as God's gift to us the day we turn to Jesus. The Spirit has come And we have our message. We don't need to try and figure out what this world needs to hear from us. We don't need a focus group to give us our big idea. Our message was given to us on the day of Pentecost Jesus is both God and man. He died, He was raised, He is Lord turn away from your sin, turn to him, and you'll find forgiveness and new life. That message is for the whole world. It's for every generation. Now, yes, the format of the message will change according to the audience and the setting, but the message itself is always the same. And if you have never responded to Jesus, then this message is for you. God's promise of forgiveness is for you, His gift of new life is for you. Come and receive it. You can do that right where you are this morning. And you can do it using the words of our last two songs. We're going to stand now and sing together. Majesty of heaven, and then I come by the blood.